0: There's one very brief teaching of the Buddhas that contains within it so much about the nature of the mind and how we need to practice. In it, the Buddha said, the nature of mind is radiant and pure. It's obscured by visiting defilements. Defilement is the translation of the Pali word kalesa. It sounds a little Victorian. But it refers to those states of mind which cause us suffering. Another phrase might be the afflictive emotions or the hindrances. So the nature of mind is radiant and pure. It's obscured by visiting defilements. When we say the nature of mind is radiant, or luminous, sometimes people think of this great white light and somehow if our practice got good, we'd dissolve in the perfection of this white light. It's not what radiance and luminosity refers to. It refers rather to the cognizing power of the mind. That power of the mind, or the nature of the mind, to know, that's where its luminosity lies, or its radiance. Nature of the mind is radiant and pure. Pure means that the knowing is unobstructed. So, for example, we sit and a sound appears, and the sound is known. It's known immediately, intuitively, without any obstruction at all. There's nothing in the way, there's nothing between the knowing and the sound. There's a beautiful phrase in Zen, from the Zen teachings of Huang Po, where he calls this purity of mind, priceless, stainless beauty. It's nice to think that what he's talking about is our own mind. This is its nature. The problem that we find in our meditation and in our lives is that this stainless purity, this radiance, this luminosity, this knowing, the power of knowing, that the purity is obscured by visiting gilaces, visiting defilements. But there's something very important. Here, And that is the understanding that the defilements, or the hindrances, are visiting. They are not inherent to the nature of mind. Well, that's good news. <laughs> because if they were inherent to the mind, as is its purity and luminosity, there'd be nothing to do about it. But the fact that they're not inherent, they arise out of certain conditions out of certain causes so when we begin to understand how these kaleshas how these hindrances arise then they actually become workable the buddha singled out five particular states which he called hindrances and he singled them out because they're very commonly and deeply conditioned in most of us. They're old, familiar friends. He singles them out because they are tremendously seductive. These states arise, and again and again and again, we are seduced into believing them and identifying with them and getting lost in them. So it was really, out of great compassion and out of his wisdom, the Buddha saying, watch out for these five states. They're very powerfully habituated in us. And he called them hindrances because they hinder our deepening powers of concentration. They hinder or obscure our recognition of the natural purity and radiance of mind. So it's essential that we begin to understand, to learn how to recognize and work with these hindrances as they arise, because it's possible to become free. I'm going to talk about them tonight in reverse order. It's the first of them in the classical listing, is desire. And when I start with desire, I never get beyond it. (laughs) So I found to experience... I have to start from the end. So, in tonight's hindrance talk, the first one is going to be doubt. some way doubt is the most dangerous of the hindrances. And it's the most dangerous because more than all the others, it can actually stop us in our practice. When we don't understand how doubt is functioning, how doubt is working, it has this tremendous power to stop us on the path. Doubt is the mind state of perplexity and confusion. It's like we come to a crossroads, and we don't know which one to take. We're just going back and forth between the two, not going anyplace. With doubt, we're even afraid to take the wrong one, and perhaps learn from our mistakes. When doubt is strong, when this perplexity is strong, should I do this or should I do that? It's as if we come to a standstill. I don't know whether you are familiar with the great American baseball player, Yogi Berra. He He was a really great baseball player. But he also is a great yogi in his own ways. And there are books of his wisdom, and it's a wisdom that came through his fractured English. And so there's a whole... There are many of his sayings. Well, one of his sayings completely captures the essence of doubt. So this is the wisdom of Yogi Berra speaking. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) 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 A Zen statement, if there ever was one. That's what happens, like, in the moment of, you know, it's like, (laughs) what do I do? In meditation practice, doubt takes some very particular forms, and we can begin to recognize it in our own minds. Very often, it's doubt about ourselves, doubt about our capacity. You know, I can't do this. It's too hard. This practice is good for other people. It's not good for me. I don't have the strength. I don't have the whatever it takes. Or maybe the doubt takes the form of, well, it's a good practice and it might be for me, but not now. You know, this isn't the right time. I'll come back next week or next year. This is the voice of doubt arising. We need to see it. might be doubt about the teachers. Who are these people anyway? (laughs) Where did they come from? It can be doubt about the practice. In, out, in, out, in, out. What is sitting here watching our breath have to do with anything at all, you know, in our lives, in the world? And so we start having all these doubts. People walking around, moving slowly, looking like zombies, looking down, not eye contact, it looks very weird, you know, and it is a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> or we start comparing practices. You know, this is too strange. I think I'm going to go off and do some Zen practice, or Sufi dancing, or you know. And all of it is just this doubt arising in the mind, but we're not seeing it as such. Some years ago, I was doing a retreat with a Tibetan teacher doing a Tibetan Dzogchen practice. It was a two-month retreat, and the first month of that retreat, I was totally lost in the mind state of comparing the Vipassana practice with the Dzogchen, who's right. If they're right, they must be wrong. And if they're right, they must be wrong. For a month, I was tormenting myself with this question, trying to figure it out. It was a tremendous amount of suffering. And I wasn't practicing anything. I wasn't practicing Dzogchen. I wasn't practicing Vipassana. I was just thinking, you know, of who was right. Finally, it took a month. I kind of resolved the issue in a very fruitful way. I saw that all of the methods and all of the teachings really are skillful means for liberation. And they could be seen as skillful means rather than as statements of absolute truth. So then the different ways of expressing things became very complementary. I could take from all of it as a way of freeing my mind. But it was a very powerful lesson for me in how when we get caught up in the doubting mind, trying to figure things out intellectually, we don't go anyplace. The reason doubt is so dangerous is because when we're lost in this speculative thinking, we are not actually practicing. We're just thinking. And so the doubt becomes self-fulfilling, the doubt about the practice. Because being lost in these thoughts back and forth really are useless, and nothing is accomplished. So we need to see it clearly so as not to be seduced by it. The problem is that doubt often comes masquerading as wisdom, and this is where we get fooled. We hear this very wise-sounding voice in the mind trying to figure it out through our thought process. But it would be like trying to understand or have the experience of music by reading a book on musical theory. It might be informative and it might be helpful, but it's not the experience, it's not the taste. It's not the direct perception of music. In exactly the same way, we have to free ourselves from being lost in this endless thinking about and drop down to the level of direct experience, because that's where the truth is going to be revealed. And we can see it very simply. When you find that the mind is lost in doubt of one kind or another, doubt about yourself, doubt about the teachers, doubt about the practice, comparing practices, whatever it is, in that very moment when you recognize the doubt, see what happens, when you come back again to the immediacy of feeling a breath or hearing a sound or sensing a movement. In that moment of immediacy of experience, where is the doubt? Where is the confusion? It's gone. So the remedy for doubt is right at hand. The challenge for us is recognizing it when it arises in the mind. And that is the practice. We need to see it. We need to become mindful of it. We need to note it. Yes, this is doubt. A very useful note. Whenever it arises, in whatever form it arises for you, doubting tape, doubting tape. That's all it is. It's simply thoughts in the mind. If we see it as thought, it has no power. If we're seduced by that thought, it stops us. So there's a great urgency, really, in understanding how this hindrance is working in our minds and in our lives, because it has application for our life in the world as well. There are times when some intellectual clarification can be helpful. You know, if you have some nagging questions about something, about your practice, about the Dharma, it can be helpful to ask, because the great beauty of the Buddha's teachings is that it is so essentially pragmatic. It's not about philosophical theory. Over and over the Buddha said he teaches one thing and one thing only, suffering, and the end of suffering. And so often some intellectual clarification of nagging questions in the mind can really bring us to a very basic and common sense understanding of our experience. So that can be helpful. This is the first of the backward order of hindrances, is doubt. It's essential that we really come to see it clearly in our practice. It's very workable when we're mindful of it and deadly when we're not mindful of it. So the second of the hindrances that is very strong at different times is the mind state of restlessness and agitation and worry. this is quite different than the state of doubt. With restlessness or agitation, what's going on is that there's an imbalance between the energy and the concentration. There's a lot of energy in the system, in the mind and body, and if there's too much energy and not enough steadiness of mind to hold it, to contain it, so then it's like the energy spills over and we just get very agitated. And we experience this in a variety of ways. Sometimes we feel restlessness in just that sense, the body cannot sit still. I don't know if you've had this experience recently, but sometimes it's just as if we're ready to jump out of our skin. You know, it's just impossible to sit still. And sometimes this happens. You know, just periodically, there was one phase in my practice when, for some reason, this intense restlessness would come every day at the same time, one particular sitting. And I was, I was sitting in Burma at the time, one of the monasteries. I was sitting about eight in the evening. I couldn't believe it. I just could not contain myself. So I would get up and I'd kind of be running around the monastery. I'm sure the monks thought I was just crazy, yogi. But that restless energy was so strong. And then I'd do my little run around the monastery, and then I'd go back and sit, and I'd be fine. But it was a very vivid example of, of how restless the body can become. Sometimes the body is still. But the mind is a whirlwind of activity. It's a mind that is very agitated. And we can't settle down and we're just lost in our thoughts and daydreams and fantasies and judgments and imagination. An extreme case of restless mind is something which we have over the years called the yogi mind. Because it's very Particular to yogis, to people on retreat. What happens is that we're sitting and going along minding our own business and all of a sudden some thought or idea arises in the mind and it's as if the mind latches onto it and starts obsessing about this particular thought or idea. Out of all sense of proportion to its importance, or even to its connection to reality. You know, I'll give you just a few examples. There was one retreat we were teaching, it was in California or the Northwest. And this one yogi just got obsessed about the planes flying overhead. So he wrote to the manager of the retreat, wrote a note saying, would you please write to United Airlines and have them rework the planes? <laughs> 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 he was <is> into it. <laughs> His mind was so agitated by that. One time I was on retreat, I was doing a long self retreat at IMS. And I was getting very quiet, very sensitive. I know how it is here at Gaia House in the wintertime when the heat's on but at IMS uh, when he'd often there's you know noise in the radiators and the pipes so i was sitting in my room and all of a sudden i started hearing voices in the pipes okay and then i started thinking and i was hearing whole conversations and then i started thinking, these voices are coming up. They're traveling from the kitchen, which was a long way away from my room. Somehow I had the idea that the voices were carrying through the pipes into my room, and the conversations that I was hearing was amazing. Two of my friends, a husband and wife, one killed the other one, and, and somebody was dying, and and all of this was framed in, they're not telling me, because they don't want to disturb my retreat. <laughs> and I am just listening to these voices. I had to, go, I had to go down to the kitchen and say, what is going on here? Why aren't you telling me these things? It was just the mind, in some crazy way, latching onto something, getting agitated, not seeing it as just a passing thought. So many different things can create yogi mind. Sometimes it's obsessive worry. Now, one of the teachers from California, you may have read her book, Sylvia Borstein, she's a self-proclaimed warrior, Not warrior, <laughs> warrior. <laughs> and so she would describe her yogi mind as just these endless disaster scenarios about her family. You know, just imagining all the, all the terrible things that could happen and then worrying about them. All of this is a function of the restless mind, right? where we're not steady. There's too much mental energy going on, not enough stillness, not enough steadiness to get quiet, to get peaceful. So when we see this, when we recognize that the mind is just obsessing in one way or another, or the body is so restless, we need to recognize the working of this hindrance and learn how to work with it. Because otherwise, we simply stay very agitated. When we understand that restlessness and agitation comes from an imbalance of energy and concentration, too much energy, not enough stillness, So then the way to work with it becomes obvious. We need, in one way or another, to create a little more stillness to balance the energy, a little more steadfastness of mind. So I'm going to suggest two different techniques, both of which uh, draw on imagery from the American West. The first is, do you know what bucking broncos are? (laughs) Okay. So the first I call the bucking bronco method. That is, when the mind is just all over the place. One way of developing concentration is just holding on to that breath, holding on for dear life. And the mind is continually trying to throw us off the breath, but we gather all our intention, all our sense of purpose, We just lock onto the breath and stay with it. This takes quite a bit of intentionality, of strength, of purpose, of determination. But if we can stay with it, and we really make that effort, after some time, the mind actually begins to quiet down. So this is quite a forceful way of doing it. Along with that, as a support for it, you might try counting the breaths. You know, sometimes people find it a little more interesting to count backwards. Anything that engages the mind to stay with it. Okay, Bucking Bronco method. The other method came to me. I was uh, in Texas one time. And some friends and I were at this restaurant. And there was this young waiter. Uh, you know, who was serving us, and we just got into a conversation. He must have been, you know, 20, 21, 22. So a young guy. We got talking about meditation, and I just asked him, you know, have you ever meditated? And he said, No, it seems pretty weird to me. You know, and I said, Well, you know, what is it that you like to do? And he said, Well, I like I like to travel. Well, where have you been? Uh, I like to go to Wyoming. And Wyoming's a state in the sort of far Midwest, uh, and it's just open, it's it's great open space, you know, great plains and big sky. So I said, and he was discovering how much he loved just being you know, in the space of Wyoming. So I said, well, meditation is a little bit like going to the inner Wyoming. You know, we create this inner space which allows for anything which has the space for anything. So this is the other way of bringing concentration when there's too much energy. Instead of the first kind of zeroing in on the breath and holding on to it, the other approach is just to make the mind very, very wide, very open. You can do that by sitting with your eyes open, by listening to sound, by becoming the space in which it's all happening. And so then we begin to experience restlessness as this whirlwind of energy, you know, a little tornado of energy in space. But we're the space, we become the space that's holding it, rather than identified with the whirlwind itself. It's quite interesting just to play energetically. to begin to get sensitized and attuned to the different imbalances that can happen and to learn how to adjust. So when there's too much energy, we're restless, we're agitated, we have yogi mind about something, can we increase the steadiness? Can we increase the stillness which brings it all to balance again? There's doubt. There's restlessness and agitation and worry. The third of the hindrances is one that many of you have been reporting on in these last couple of days. It's very common, especially at the beginning of a retreat, and that in the Buddhist terminology, the Buddhist jargon, is called sloth and torpor. Now this is a great name for this mind state. I was reading a book, a natural history book, and I just happened to come across a section describing the three-toed sloth. And the three-toed sloth is an amazing animal. I don't know how familiar you are with it. but It sort of just hangs from a tree. And it's so slothful that it, this was described in the book. It said that if you just even shot a gun right by its ear, it wouldn't even move. <laughs> You know, and then every once in a while, I don't know, I forget how often, not too often, it kind of makes its way down the tree, you know, for a meal and maybe mates, and it goes back up the tree and just hangs her again. That's what the mind can become like, you know. Sloth and torpor means this quality of dullness, of heaviness, of sleepiness, sleepiness when there's no vitality. It's like the mind shrinks and it contracts. Why is this so common, the first days of a retreat? It's common for a very interesting reason. And that is, mostly in our lives, we are running on the energy of stimulation. Our lives are full of stimulation of all kinds, you know, tea, and coffee, and people, and activity, and just the busyness of our lives, and that continually jazzes us up. And We have all this energy from the stimulation that's driving us through the day. Well we come to a retreat, there's not much stimulation going on. It's very quiet, there's not much input. And so what happens? It's like we go through a withdrawal from our usual fix, you know, our energy fix. And so there's this feeling of just kind of collapse and no energy. You feel so tired. And, but then something quite magical happens. And for many of you, it has already begun to happen. Having let go of this dependence on external stimulation for our energy, and going through that period of letdown, we then begin to connect with the deeper energy system that is our mind and body. We begin to draw on the energy that we have inherently, not dependent on the outside. And so once we make that turn, it's quite amazing what happens. You know, People start to feel more and more energized, this initial sleepiness and heaviness uh, gradually goes away, and particularly in longer courses, but probably even in this course, for some of you, you may begin to feel you know, extremely wakeful. We start needing less sleep. Uh, we get so enlivened from an energy source that is very authentic within us. So this is part of what happens. So to understand sloth and torpor, the real depth of it is not about the occasional sleepiness that comes at the beginning of a retreat. That's, that's fairly superficial, and it's easy to uh, get beyond. There's a deeper manifestation of sloth and torpor, which has very powerful implications for how we live our lives. And this meaning of sloth and torpor is the deep pattern or habit we have of withdrawing from difficulties, withdrawing or retreating in the face of difficulty. That's the deeper meaning of sloth and torpor. We come up against some difficult situation, whether it's in meditation or in our life. Maybe it's pain in the body, or a difficult emotion, or a difficult person or situation. The real meaning of sloth and torpor is that contraction away from facing that difficulty. And so it's very important that we learn to recognize the different ways we do that, and to see what the alternatives are. We need somehow to turn that around and to gather the energy to meet the challenge of difficulties because that's how we grow. You know, we get to an edge of what's comfortable When sloth and torpor, in its deeper meaning, is there, we pull back from that edge. When we're aware, when we're mindful, it becomes possible to work right at that edge and to go beyond our limitation. One of the problems is that sloth and torpor often comes masquerading as compassion. How does that happen? And just like doubt can come masquerading as wisdom, sloth and torpor masquerades as compassion We're feeling tired. So there's this voice in the mind, oh, I think I should take care of myself. Let me nurture myself. I'll have a little nap. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of, okay, there's tiredness, there's some difficulty, let me be with it. It's that voice of retreat. And it's not that that voice is always inappropriate. There are times when it is appropriate to retreat. You know, when we're at an edge and it's overwhelming, and we need to come back a little bit to gather some strength. So I don't want to minimize the importance of that. But what I'm talking about is not those situations, but when we're just giving in To a difficulty where we do have the strength to be with it, but we need to arouse the energy to do it. I once heard a very, uh, a, a little story that so illustrated the importance of working with sloth and torpor in this way. There was somebody who came across a cocoon where the butterfly was just you know, the, was just beginning to come out of the cocoon as a butterfly. So this person saw what was happening and thought to help the process along, you know, to make it easier for the butterfly, and so unraveled the cocoon. But then, of course, when the butterfly came out. It didn't have the strength in its wings, which came from the struggle to come out of the cocoon. It didn't have the ability to fly because it hadn't developed that strength. And so that very good intention to be compassionate you know, and help this butterfly along actually was no service at all. And so we have to watch in ourselves that what may look like a compassionate voice in our minds that is taking us away from those times of difficulty where the real engagement and the real growth and strengthening is precisely from being with it and being with the struggle you know, and not retreating from it. When the mind is contracted in sloth and torpor, you know, it's, a very, it's a very collapsed state of mind, there's not a lot of joy or delight either in the practice or in one's life, you know, because there's not much energy going on there. And not only is there not much joy or delight in one's life, when there's sloth and torpor in the mind, it really hates energetic people. And I had, this, I had this come up with me once on one retreat this quite a few years ago. I was in Australia doing a retreat with Upandita. And we were staying, and a few of us were just in one part of the building. And we had rooms. I had rooms across kind of a common walking area from this friend of mine. And this guy was just kind of a warrior in practice. I was staying up pretty late. But no matter how late I stayed up, he was still up, sitting and walking. And I was getting up pretty early. But no matter how early I got up, he was already up, sitting and walking. I hated him. <laughs> I, and I had all kinds of self-judgments about myself. You know, about, oh, I'm not a good yogi. And you know, look at him, and he's making all this effort. And I, I was just really getting caught in this mindset. Of not liking him and not liking myself very much. Until at a certain point, and I think it was after Upandita gave a talk on sloth and torpor, sort of exploring some of its deeper meanings. It's not only only sleepiness, that's the most superficial meaning. You know, it's the sense of withdrawing from difficulty. I saw that all of this mental activity in my mind. You know, of not liking him and judging myself really was just sloth and torpor talking. You know, and so when I saw that and I stopped personalizing it so much, I I just saw the humor. Yeah, that's that mind state having this conversation. And so I was just kind of settled back watching it. There was a lot more humor, a lot more lightness, a lot more inspiration. Then when I saw my friend doing this, Instead of getting lost in the sloth-and-torpor attitude, I actually got inspired. Oh yeah, You can do that. Maybe I can make a little more effort. Okay, so the first strategy, as with all of these states, doubt and restlessness, sloth-and-torpor, we need to recognize it. We need to actually see what's present, because if we don't, if we're not aware then we simply get seduced by it. We become identified with it. So once we recognize it, it's possible actually to investigate the dull mind, the sleepy mind, the contracted mind. You know, when you're sitting here and you're just feeling really heavy or really sleepy or really dull, Instead of simply giving into it, or even getting into a battle with it, can you investigate what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness, or that I'm calling dullness, or heaviness? Where well, we turn our investigative power to really look at what is the direct nature of this experience in the mind, in the body. Where do we feel happy? Does the head feel happy? Does the eyes, what's going on, you know, in the chest, and the torso? What exactly is the quality of the mind? You know, and that very investigation brings energy. With sloth and torpor, because it's a lack of energy, what we need to do is Practice in ways that create more energy for us. Well, these are just a few little suggestions. Very careful, precise noting. In order to do that, you need to be paying attention, which requires energy, which arouses the whole system. Really take care with the connecting and sustaining I talked about. We're really coming close to the object and sustain the attention. Again, it takes energy to do that. If you're outside and you're walking and you feel very heavy or dull, walk faster. Another possibility, which is counterintuitive, but which I discovered on retreat, sometimes walking slower brings energy. Again, during one of the Upandita retreats. I was walking, doing walking meditation in the dining room of IMS, right next to a yogi who was the queen of slowness. I mean, it could have taken her an hour and a half to get from here to the door, and that's how slowly she was moving, incredible. So I was in the dining room, she was walking very slowly, and I was walking slow, but not that slow. (laughs) I was feeling very tired. This was you know, late at night and I was just you know, really not very energetic. So at first I thought, well, I'll start walking quicker. It didn't help, I was still just as tired. And then I had the idea, Well, what would happen if I really slowed down and tried to walk as slowly as this other yogi was walking. Basically it came down to my saying, let me see how slowly I can move, and still be moving. (laughs) Well, it was an amazing experiment, because within two steps, my mind was totally awake and alert. Because it took such attention to do that. You know, it took such focus of mind to get that slow, that it brought this tremendous wakefulness to my whole system. So you want to play. You just want to play in a lot of different ways when sloth and torpor is predominant to arouse the energy, to arouse some wakefulness. If you're in the hall and you're really sleepy or tired, sit with the eyes open. Sit up very straight. Stand up. And as a last resort, something I mentioned in one of my groups this morning, we had a Korean Zen master visit us once, very fierce old guy. He said, in his youth, when he was practicing, and he was overcome with sleepiness, he would tie a knife under his chin. <laughs> That's the Zen way. <laughs> so if you do that. Use a butter knife. <laughs> okay, there's doubt, there's restlessness, agitation, worry, there's sloth and torpor, both in its meaning of dullness or sleepiness, but also in its deeper meaning of that withdrawing from difficulty. You know? And when we see that that's what's happening, can we arouse the energy, the presence of mind, to actually be there in a very precise, exact way for what's happening. As we practice that, this habit pattern of mind gets weaker, and we find that we have much more energy and vitality in our lives. But it's a practice, you know? so that's what we do here. Okay, the fourth of the hindrances, and the last one I'm going to talk about tonight, is extremely powerful, and when not understood, has disastrous consequences for ourselves and for other people. And that is the kalesa, or the hindrance, of aversion. Now, aversion is a word that covers a whole range of mind states, anger, hatred. Impatience, rage, guilt, fear, boredom, sorrow, the condemning mind, the judging mind. All of these are forms of aversion. All of them are conditioned responses to unpleasant situations now why do we get angry or why are we afraid or why do we feel sorrow something is happening in ourselves or around us that is unpleasant and this is the conditioned reaction to unpleasantness we don't like it and our not liking it takes many forms we feel this kind of aggressive or aversive, angry energy when we don't get what we want. We feel frustrated. We feel this angry, aggressive energy when we do get what we don't want, when things come to us that we don't like. We respond with anger in one form or another. It's very easy to observe the working of aversion in our relationship to physical pain. So that's why on retreat and sitting here as you feel different kinds of discomfort, if there's not sloth and torpor, meaning if there's not the withdrawing from the difficulty, it is difficult to be with unpleasant feelings. But if we can be with it, we can learn a lot about the nature of our response to unpleasantness. The nature of our conditioning. What happens when there's strong pain, you know, when you're sitting? Is there sometimes contraction, a pulling away from it? Or just a dislike, you know, a hatred of it? Frustration, impatience. What are the things that come on, you know, when there's discomfort in the body? And then to watch all the strategies that we employ for dealing with it. Because many of the strategies that we use in dealing with pain are not helpful. They're not skillful. Just to mention a few. Pain comes up and maybe we get into a round of self-pity. You know, poor me. I'm the only one here sitting in pain. Everyone else is in bliss. (laughs) And poor me. You know, we just kind of start sinking in self-pity. Or maybe there's tremendous fear. You know, pain starts coming up or discomfort of some kind. And fear, again, is a way of contracting from simply feeling it. And often it's not even fear of the actual sensation in the moment. More often than not, it's fear of anticipated pain. Well, what is this going to be like in five minutes or ten minutes or half an hour? We imagine that and get afraid. So that's another strategy that doesn't really help. Another one, more subtle one, this is a yogi strategy. We start bargaining. I'll watch you, I'll be mindful of you if you go away. <laughs> well, of course, that's not really mindfulness. <laughs> you know, that's just aversion disguised. So where does aversion come? How does it come? Why does it come? It arises very often about past situations that we're remembering. And we remember something that happened or something that we imagine might happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it might, and we think about it and get angry. There's a story which so illustrates this. This is a Zen story. There was this monk, hermit monk, living in a cave. He was an artist. And part of his practice was painting. And so on the wall of his cave, he painted a tiger. And he did this, you know, over a long period of time, over a year or many years. He painted it so realistically that when he was finished, He looked at it and got frightened. We are doing just the same thing. We are having certain thoughts in the mind of certain people, certain events that have happened or might happen. We're having these thoughts arise in the mind. We look at them and get angry. They are only thoughts. It's not what's happening. One of the lines my teacher, Munindraji, used a lot, he said, The thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. But with so many of our thoughts, we take them to be the reality instead of seeing them to be just a thought, that we look at them and get frightened, get angry, get fearful, whatever it is. So we need to see this. We need to see how this is working and not get deceived. Anger or aversion, irritation can arise about situations on retreat. At IMS, every three-month course, which is in the fall, we have what are called the window wars. Because some people like the windows open, and some people like the windows closed. (laughs) It is amazing the intensity of aversion that can arise over whether the window is open or closed. In Burma it used to be the fan wars, you know, whether the overhead fans were on or off. And in one instance, two monks, Western monks, actually came to blows <laughs> over the fan. It's quite amazing how filled the mind can become with <coughs> anger. We have a version about difficulties that arise in our practice. You know, when we're having a difficult time, as happens, either because of the hindrances or the body's uncomfortable or, you know, old things are coming up, unpleasant memories or emotions. There are lots of times of difficulty. When we're not being mindful, when we're not, when we've lost the inner Wyoming, we're just caught in it. Often, our response to these difficulties is aversion, and dislike. And it doesn't stop there. The discouragement that we may feel about our own practice often gets projected onto others in what I call the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, where there's one person on the retreat that drives you crazy. You don't like anything about them. You don't like they walk, you don't like how they eat, you don't like what they wear, and so just watch the mind, and just tell the person you don't even know, you know but it's just the mind, this, this force of a virgin, a virgin latching on you know, and being projected out. So in all of these ways or times when anger arises, irritation, boredom, hatred, fear. The heart contracts. We really are in a very contracted place. It's a kind of burning and a great feeling of separation. So what to do? How do we work with the strong forces of anger in the mind or aversion in the mind? As with all the others, we need to be mindful when it arises. We have to be right there with it so that we're not seduced, so we're not caught up so quickly. We see, we recognize, we note it. That this is anger, this is fear, this is rage, whatever it may be. And we want to see if we can practice having metta, having a little compassion for the angry mind, for the suffering, the suffering of that anger. You know, when we're caught up in this, when we're very angry, who is it that's suffering? We're the ones who are carrying that suffering. So can we feel a little compassion for the whole situation? Compassion for ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how you know, when the sun shines on a flower, through the warmth of the sun the flower opens. He talks about how we need to shine the sun of compassion on our own anger in order to melt it, in order to dissolve it. So we hold it softly rather than be identified with it or condemn it, which is very common. It's possible to drop from the level of obsessive thinking our angry thoughts You know, when we're just holding a situation or a person, we're going over and over and over again, to actually drop from that level of obsessive thinking to the level, the experience of our heart. And when we're caught in the angle, we feel the tightness of the heart, and then to consciously relax it, to open it. And it's quite amazing how we can do that just through the power of our attention. Anger is extremely seductive. I want to read one short quote of the Buddha's about anger, which captures so much of its energy. He said, Anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. You know, and there's something we like about it, you know because it is so energetic and it's murderously sweet but we forget that it really is coming from a poison source it's coming from a place of separation it's coming from a place of ill will but people often are concerned well if I give up my anger if I let go of it what will be the energy for affecting needed change you know change you know, a situation, change in the world. I think the Buddha was pointing out that there's a much less harmful source of energy for change, and that is uh, the great power of compassion. Compassion for the ignorance which causes so much harm in the world. And the beautiful embodiment of this, of course, there are many, but someone that comes to mind and you're all familiar with, somebody like the Dalai Lama, you know, who in the face of tremendous, tremendous suffering, you know, in Tibet and of the Tibetan people, he does not use anger to combat that injustice because he sees the ill effect of it. And he's so tremendously effective because he is able to tap into that place of compassion. Compassion for the suffering Tibetans and compassion for the ignorance of the Chinese who are inflicting that suffering. It's an amazingly expansive heart and mind space. In order for us to tap that place, we need to understand how anger arises in ourselves. when it arises. To be with the unpleasant situations that arise in our body, in our minds, in our environment, to note the unpleasantness, to note the anger, and to let it go. So these are four of the five hindrances. Talk about the last one, desire, somewhat on Wednesday. When we're not mindful of them, we get very contracted, very tight. We lose our connection with the natural purity and radiance of mind. And when we are mindful of them, of doubt, of restlessness, sloth and torpor, aversion, anger, as well. When we can bring them into the field of our awareness, we see that these very states are empty and insubstantial also. They lose all their power in the light of awareness. And that's what we're practicing. I'll just close with one line of Krishnamurtis. It really sums up, in a way, the essence of our practice. He said, it's the truth which liberates, not your effort to be free. And so what we're doing here is trying to cultivate that mind which sees things clearly, sees things just as they are. It's the meaning of Vipassana. And so we work with these hindrances to see them clearly and to see through them.